Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish, and I'm the co-deputy editor of Film Comment. A few weeks ago, I was in Mumbai, India, for this year's edition of the Mumbai Film Festival, one of the major international film festivals in South Asia. The festival has existed since 1997, but it went on hiatus for a few years in 2020 in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. This year, it came back with a bang with an all-new leadership team. It was my first time at the festival, and I found it to be a really impressive showcase of formally and politically bold filmmaking from all over South Asia, and a rare oasis within a film landscape dominated by commercial blockbusters and constrained by the Indian state's censorship policies. So on today's episode, I was joined by the programmer Ine Prakash, who also attended this year's Mumbai Film Festival, to delve into the festival's unique place within the cultural context of India today, and some of our favorites from the lineup, which included The World is Family by Anand Patwardhan, Against the Tide by Sarvnik Kaur, a series of short films by Amit Datta, Which Color by Shahrukh Khan Chawada, and more. A quick note to listeners, the audio quality on today's episode might strike you as a bit unusual. We unfortunately had some tech problems with our equipment, but I hope the richness of today's conversation will make up for that. Very excited to do this uh, rather special episode of the Film Common podcast with my friend Ine Prakash. We both have just returned from the Mumbai Film Festival, a festival organized by the Mumbai Academy of the Moving Image, MAMI, about a couple weeks ago. And we have a lot of uh, observations and movie recommendations to share. Ine, great to have you back on the podcast. You want to say a couple lines of introduction? Uh, Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, my name is Ine Prakash. I'm glad to be back on the podcast. I'm a uh, writer, critic, and programmer uh, based in New York. Um, how are you uh, doing with the jet lag? Are you over it at this point? Um, not fully yet. Uh, just to be clear for listeners who may not know, it's almost 10 and a half hours, the time difference. So it's really just like inverted day and time. So I don't think I'm fully over it yet. I'm still waking up in the middle of the night for a little bit, but you know, getting there. Uh, Ine, I'm wondering if you want to say a little bit about the circumstances under which you attended the festival. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, uh, I was glad to be invited, uh, as you were, to the festival um, for the first time. And uh, I hadn't been to India in about six years. Um, I have, you know, my my uh, I have family there and I grew up going there. Um, so I have some context, but, you know, getting reintroduced to the country also went hand in hand with with my experience of the festival. Um, Bombay is, uh, you know, a teeming city uh, for anyone who hasn't been there. People do love to call it teeming. 
<laughs> I think it's the appropriate adjective, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, given, given the population density and its uh, rate of movement. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I was incredibly curious to check out um, the festival. I think in particular, I am curious about festivals outside of the Western um, context, uh, which I think are overemphasized. Obviously, um, you know, that's still where the attention and the money and the power, etc. is. But uh, I think there are a lot of fascinating things happening um, in the East or the global South or whatever you want to call it. So I was fascinated to um, enter that context. Um, and then also just to see how, um, you know, I was curious about, you know, freedom of expression and speech in India, given some of the headlines uh, I'd read over the weeks preceding the trip. Um, you know, a big one was that the writer Arundhati Roy was uh, charged with sedition for a comment she made about Kashmir um, in 2010, um, uh, which is pretty uh, outlandish, um, basically just saying that she didn't think uh, it was an integral part of India. Uh, I don't need to go into the politics of Kashmir because that could be, um, you know, uh, rather distracting. But I was I was curious um, to see uh you know, if uh, if a festival could function in that kind of seemingly restrictive context um, and, you know, was pleased to find that it very much can. And uh, for for whatever freedoms are being restricted or whatever um, kind of unreasonable measures the government has been taking, um, there there didn't seem to be, um, you know, uh, I'll say that that the programming seed seemed to be free and and far ranging at this festival. It was a great it was a great lineup, um, and I was especially excited to dig into some of the uh, Asian titles and experience those um, with an Indian audience. Yeah, and to give listeners a little bit context also as to how you know what this festival really represents within the landscape of Indian festivals. The festival has existed since nineteen ninety seven. Uh, at that point, all the other major festivals in India, they were all mostly state-run. Um, there is the International Film Festival of India, which now takes place in Goa, which is uh, a kind of a state-run national uh, international film festival. And then there are many regional festivals that are run by regional governments or, you know, some kind of public-private funding. So the Mumbai Film Festivals was really started... Uh, by a group of industry professionals in Bombay who wanted a festival that was run by the industry itself. Um, and so this nonprofit trust named the Mumbai Academy of the Moving Image was formed and started hosting this festival. And in 2009, uh, a, I would say a pretty major change happened, which is that Reliance Industries, which is India's uh, I believe largest public company, most valuable market company came on board as a leading sponsor and partner. Now, Reliance Industries is owned and run by Mukesh Ambani, who is a billionaire. He's the richest man in Asia. And I think, according to recent estimates, the 13th richest man in the world. Uh, Reliance Industries uh, has a variety of businesses that include energy, petrochemicals, natural gas, retail, telecom, mass media, textiles. I mean, they really kind of, um, I would say, are like corporate overlords in India. And they uh, they have a telecommunications company called Geo, 
which is the title sponsor of the festival. So that's why uh, I was alluding to this context earlier. The festival is called Geomami. Um, and the presence of the sponsors is really felt, was this really felt this year. Um, another quick kind of note is that the festival went on hiatus in 2020 amid COVID challenges and then had a change in leadership and sort of came back this year uh, with new uh, with a new artistic director and festival team, uh, a kind of newly organized lineup. Uh, they used to have an India-focused competition. This year they have a South Asia competition and a new venue, which was in this Geo World Convention Center complex that the Ambani's have built in Bombay. And the festival hub was this center called the Nita Mukesh Ambani Cultural Center, the NMAC, which was unveiled earlier this year with lots of fanfare and international celebrities walking the carpet. And so the presence of these sponsors very much felt, but it also, all this private funding, all of it is private funding, um, allows the festival to some extent be, I imagine, free of uh, too much government control and meddling. Um, that said, the festival, just like all fest film festivals in India, has to submit its films for an exemption from censorship, for a censor exemption certificate. And to do this, they have to basically present the festival as a cultural event that doesn't exist to make profit. So there is, you know, the makeup of the festival, whether financially, infrastructurally, I found very unique. And it also, I think, uh, was a special kind of opportunity for many cinephiles in Mumbai to see films that otherwise would not find any kind of distribution, screenings, or, you know, frankly, censor-free circulation uh, theatrically in India. Right. Films released that theatrically need a censor certificate. Um, and it was great to see the audiences come out. It is a really strong audience festival. Almost every screening I was in um, was packed. Um, as you said, the sponsor uh, presence was really felt. Um, the opening night ceremony, which took place at uh, the Nita Mokesh Ambani Cultural Center, a uh, very uh, decadent, um, it really feels like a convention center inside, but there's also um, an enormous theater where the opening night ceremony was held. Um, it was, uh, had a very high production value, felt, uh, like I felt like I was at Oscar night, uh, or something. And, um, you know, alongside a parade of Bollywood stars, uh, Isha Ambani, a scion of the family also took the stage to say a few words. Um, I was surprised at the uh, extent of Bollywood presence at the festival, given, um, you know, that the lineup is primarily comprised of art house independent films, but the board is stacked with Bollywood filmmakers and the chair of the board is Priyanka Chopra Jonas, who um, was present at opening night and uh, introduced several folks. Um, awards were given out. Uh, other Bollywood luminaries I recognized were um, uh, Karan Johar uh, and Karina Kapoor, um, a star who was very present in the diaspora and uh, who featured in the opening night film, um, which I suppose was an exception uh, in terms of Bollywood, one of the few. Uh, and uh, that was directed by uh, Hansel Mehta. And um, I can't say much about it because it's a Netflix film and they've embargoed reactions until the film's release. Um, and I don't think they've uh, 
released a release date yet, so to say. Yeah, that was a, an interesting note to receive on opening night, uh, you know, saying no reviews or reactions to this film until its release, which makes it really confusing why they would do uh, a screening at a festival with press junkets, you know, without even a set release date. Yeah, it's one can do a lot of speculation that <laughs> I, I won't I won't do because I don't have enough information to back it up. But um, yeah, but it was, you know, it was interesting to interview uh, Karina Kapoor and the director. And it was also interesting to be embedded with the um, kind of foreign press contingent. You know, I was staying with uh, a handful of other critics who'd come from um, mostly or entirely, I think, European countries. Um, and it was interesting to uh, experience, you know, opening night and other aspects of the festival through their lens. Most of them hadn't been to India before and, you know, weren't familiar with a lot of these Indian and Bollywood personalities. Um, and I fell somewhere in the middle, you know, being a child of the diaspora um, who had gone there growing up. Um, so uh, it was interesting to see that. And I think there was a little bit of, you know, like I said, alienation in, in their not... Um, in their lack of cultural literacy when it comes to Indian cinema and the landscape. But I also think that the festival has a uh, strong potential um, to be uh, an international hub. Yeah. And we should say, since you mentioned the contingent of foreign journalists and uh, you brought up a good point when we were planning for this podcast that uh, we, you know, as journalists and critics um, covering festivals, we don't often talk about the fact that, a lot of times when we're at festivals, it's on the festival's dime, which is the case for both of us uh, at Mumbai. You you attended as one of the foreign journalists who were kind of flown out and put up. And I uh, was also invited and I did some Q&As and masterclasses and sort of mentored um, the festival's Young Critics Lab. And um yeah, I just wanted to mention that because I think uh, it was a good note that you brought up, Ine, about just when we when we're talking about a festival's funding and infrastructure and kind of logistical makeup, we often don't uh, talk about how journalists and press kind of fit fit into that machine or or benefit from it. Yeah, um, you know, I asked you just because I was kind of genuinely curious about what the um, journalistic ethics or etiquette are for um, this kind of situation. You know, of course, I would never. Um, say something I don't believe to be true personally about a festival or any film or et cetera that I'm covering. But, um, you know, there's obviously it would be nice to be invited back. Uh, <laughs> so there's motivation to, to be positive. Luckily in this scenario, I don't feel a lot of, um, you know, I had a good time at the festival and I, I think it's a genuinely a great festival. So I don't feel, uh, any conflict over that, but, um, it it was uh it is interesting to me to think through um whether whether uh these these things should be disclosed um i mean this is a total digression and we should get to the film soon i think i think this is worth talking about because we also live in this journalistic landscape where very very few publications have the resources to send critics to places to festivals on their dime and it ends up falling on, or not falling on, but it ends up that festivals, which have these corporate sponsors, end up sort of sourcing their own coverage, you know, in a sense. And I do think that that's a kind of larger 
industry uh, trend that we need to talk about more. And when we talk about the sponsors of a festival, I think it's worth it's worth mentioning that often that kind of sponsorship money goes into supporting uh, press, which increasingly publications don't have. Totally. Yeah. It's difficult to condemn because as you say, the re- I mean, as you imply, the reality is that these festivals just wouldn't be covered otherwise. Um, the resources don't exist in the journalistic world anymore. Um, and uh, yeah, but I think it's important to talk about um, and consider. Yeah. So let's go on to the films. Actually, quite a few films that we were taken with. So I thought we could run down a few of those. Uh, maybe we can start with a film that both of us watched early in the festival, a kind of much-awaited film uh, by Anand Patwardhan, one of the great documentarians of the world and uh, really a kind of pioneer in India who's been making films since the 70s, extremely political documentaries that have faced censorship and legal battles. Um, his last film, Reason, circulated quite a bit in the U.S., so people might know him from that. But his new film, The World is Family, which uh, screened earlier this fall at the Toronto Film Festival, uh, also played at Mami. Uh, Ine, I know that you really enjoyed the film. You want to say a little about it? Yeah, I'm a big uh, fan of Anand Patwardhan's work. I, you know, I've written about it and I've uh, hosted him at Maisel's Documentary Center, where I work as a programmer. Um, and I think a lot of my uh, Indian historical and political literacy um, grew out of watching all of his work in sequence, which really from the 70s um, charts uh, the rise of Hindu nationalism that we now see as the predominant force in Indian politics. But this film uh, is a is a bit of a, an aside, a bit of a left turn in that it's more personal. Um, it's uh, very much a first-person essayistic film about uh, Anand's parents, um, who were freedom fighters, um, who fought for Indian independence uh, alongside uh, Mahatma Gandhi and others. Um, and uh, yeah, it was incredibly uh, compelling for me on a personal level as well, because I um, am born to uh, parents from what is now India, but who's whose their parents, my grandparents, three out of four of them were born in what is uh, now Pakistan in Lahore. So they came over during um, the partition of India um, that coincided with Indi- independence. And um, Anand's family also came from Pakistan. In the film, he travels uh, back there to the house where they lived. I think his mother specifically, right? His mother's side, yeah. Right, and his mother's father, his grandfather in particular, um, was kind of the patriarch. And uh, he travels back to his home in Pakistan and meets the uh, the old neighbors, as well as the people who are there now. The building uh, where his family lived has become a um, hospital, uh, which, which he says he's pleased with. He says, I think something like, at least it's become something useful. Um, so it's still um, charting political and historical terrain, but um, more so through the personal experience of his family. Yeah, and I should mention that the footage that you are describing was shot many years ago, apparently. You know, there are, I forget the exact year it's mentioned in the film, but it was part of this uh, sort of expedition undertaken by many descendants of partition uh, refugees 
uh, to cross the border in sort of a political gesture of, you know, a friendship and pacifism. And I, I note that to say that this film has been shot over a long period of time. It, from my understanding, brings together footage that uh, I think Anand has been collecting for a little while and also ties it together with archival footage. And really, like you say, it's it's a quite remarkable and affecting interweaving of the personal and the political. So on his mother's, his mother, in addition to being a descendant of refugees of the partition, uh, she was a potter who trained at Shanti Niketan, which was the school, you know, really kind of progressive secular art school run by Rabindranath Tagore, the great poet. And his father's family was very involved in the Indian freedom struggle. And his father and his uh, his father's brothers, like Anand's uncles, uh, you know, went to jail, you know, participated in marches. And he kind of interviews that generation of his family and connect, collects a lot of anecdotes about their experience in the struggle and also has some archival photos and footage tying it all together. And I think the film really does emerge as kind of a reflection on what brought him to the point of being a political artist in modern India, you know? So like the ways in which his family, his parents and their parents have uh, experienced politics and art in a changing India and how he has kind of taken those strands into his own work. He also reflects on the ways in which caste privilege has brought both his parents and him to where they are. Um, and yeah, I found it just extremely moving in a way that his work is not always very personal, obviously. And um, this was very tender in a way that I didn't expect, especially because uh, he spends a lot of time filming his parents up close as they're getting old and getting sicker and closer and closer to death. And there are moments where they kind of argue about the very act of filmmaking, about whether in their home he's a filmmaker or a son, you know, and kind of brings us into the into the intimate world and kind of backstory of this filmmaker that I have only known until this point as a very particular kind of uh, radical documentarian and haven't really kind of known this, the, the the side, the personal side of his life and work. Yeah, there's a point where his, um, you know, mother says something like, uh, oh, am I talking to my son or the great Anand Patwardhan? Um, you know, I'll just say also that I, uh, as you mentioned, it's, this is largely, uh, one of the aspects of the film is is how his parents' politics um, informed his own. And he draws connections between um, the independence movement and the protests uh, in 2019 against the Citizenship Amendment Act, um, which was, you know, uh, I think to at least to that date, one of the major controversies of the Modi administration. Um, it was a bill that targeted um, the enfranchisement of Muslim Indians in particular. Yeah, and uh, I should also just quickly mention before we move on that Anand said in the Q&A, this is his first film ever to be screened at the Mumbai Film Festival, uh, which was met, uh, you know, with a lot of laughs and claps because, of course, it comes with the uh, subtext that this is also in some ways his least, his most, if I may say, harmless film, uh, you know, since it's about him and his family. And so... 
it's circulating in a way that his other films have struggled to. Uh, but we'll see where it goes next. Yes. It's also an hour and a half uh, versus four hours long. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That is, a, that is also worth noting. Uh, maybe I will talk about uh, another documentary. This actually won the grand prize of the festival. It won the South Asia competition. The award is called Golden Gateway, named after the gateway of India in Bombay. It's a film called Against the Tide by Sarvnik Kaur. And it actually premiered at Sundance earlier this year in January, where I saw it and was completely taken away with it. And I've talked about it on my Sundance uh, podcast from earlier this year. If people are curious, I'll keep it short here. Uh, but I, you know, I didn't see all of the competition films, so I, I can't really say, you know, comment on the choice of the winner. But to me, this is one of the great films, the great documentaries of the year. So I'm really glad it's getting more attention. It's also opening in New York this Friday, so I really recommend people check it out. Uh, it's a beautiful and really kind of stirring film about two fishermen from the Kohli community in Mumbai. The Kohli is an indigenous fishing community. And these two fishermen who are friends have taken uh, two very different approaches to practicing their ancestral kind of craft and an, our ancestral, I should say, trade in the present day. So Rakesh, uh, who lives in this kind of uh, small semi-pakka house near the ocean with his wife and mother-in-law and newborn child, is, you know, does the kind of traditional cyclone fishing uh, where, you know, he has a small uh, motorboat and he he doesn't, you know, he has a small net just enough to kind of um, support himself and make, you know, make a small profit. And he follows the kind of moon cycles, you know, the cycles of the earth and the moon uh, to organize his fishing. And Ganesh is a kind of more ambitious uh, guy and a capitalist, you might call him, who's also from the community, but who has taken to running huge deep sea boats with lots of crew uh, using LED lights at night to attract fish, which is a practice that has been banned in all the coastal states in India because uh, of how it harms the the fish, um, and and has this kind of different approach, you know, to to tradition. But he's also really uh, um, he's also really mired in you know financial difficulties and debt, and so the film kind of. Has, does this beautiful tapestry of their home lives as well as their lives out on the sea and their friendship, which is kind of the backbone of the film. It keeps returning to their conversations where they often, you know, argue about these differences. But despite that, the film doesn't posit any kind of easy schematic, you know, uh, Rakesh versus Ganesh framework. I think it really depicts both of their lives and choices as part of this larger system that has pushed them both into different kinds of corners and in which no one is winning. You know, no one is winning in the system where climate change has ruined the oceans and a, and a political and sociocultural climate where, um, you know, small uh, fishermen are really suffering, you know, are really unable to compete with huge kind of, corporate multinational operations and 
the one thing I really want to highlight about the film, I mean, I think it's just an incredible work of ethnography and how it gains intimate access to these men's lives and just allows them to be candid in a way on the camera in a way I haven't kind of seen in a while but it's also a remarkably beautiful documentary to watch every scene is framed uh, so well and not because you know it's really glossy or or or, or you know high resolution or, or glamorous but just because of the way in which it finds the right framing, you know, it gets so close to certain scenes, the way it captures natural light, the way the camera accompanies Rakesh as he goes out into the night, into the sea at night, you know, in the midst of a storm. It's really like with these characters in a way that, I mean, I wouldn't say that it reminded me of Leviathan per se, but it's kind of that mix between an observational documentary and that kind of really embedded documentary where you're feeling, you know, things as they happen. It's there in the fish market. It's there on the boats as they go out. It's there in these people's homes as they're just like living daily lives. And what that means is that it captures this world with just incredible tactility and proximity and detail. Um, So, yeah. I was just very entranced by this film, and I hope people seek it out this week in New York. It's been a while. Uh, I caught it during Sundance last year, but uh, I was impressed by it as well, and especially uh, the cinematography, you know, whose function you you so eloquently just laid out. Um, there's another prize winner that Ine, I think we wanted to talk about, a film called Kayo Kayo Color, or Which Color in English, which uh, won the the prize awarded by the Young Critics Jury of the festival. Um, did you want to say some... I know you've been a fan of this film for almost a year now, so... Yeah, so I caught this film um, at its premiere in Rotterdam, uh, where it was part of a program called The Shape of Things to Come um, that uh, I think kind of loosely gestured... Um, at uh, Indian uh, politics uh, over the last um, decades. And, uh, you know, it was, if not programmed, at least um, written up by uh, Srikanth Srinivasan, the film critic, who's also on the uh, MAMI programming committee. Um, And yeah, I told you straight out of Rotterdam that this was uh, one of my favorites. It's a uh, very um, sort of modest and simply constructed debut film by the filmmaker Shahrukh Khan Chavada. And it's about a um, Muslim family in the neighborhood, in a, in a Muslim neighborhood of um, Ahmedabad uh, in India. And it's about kind of the daily quoted in details of life. It focuses a lot on the children um, and the title is a reference to one of the games they play, which is called Kayo Kayo Color. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, one can think of it as a kind of come over Red Rover kind of thing. But, um, you know, and Srikant pointed this out in, in his program notes, but to me it had very much had the um, uh, feel um, of uh, Charles Burnett's Killer of Sheep. You know, that was the first thing that came to mind as I was watching it. Um, there's a domestic drama that develops over the course of the film, but its real strength is in um, capturing, I think, kind of uh, ordinary moments um, 
of children uh, playing in the street and uh, filing into school. And it's composed in these, um, it's in Academy Ratio 4-3 and um, composed in these beautiful um, wide shots, um, you know, uh, there's a moment I appreciated where the camera kind of bumps and it's just, it just felt like, uh, you know, one of these films that is maybe a little rough around the edges in a very human way that um, emphasizes its, uh, its sort of lived in this. I think also like Killer of Sheep, this was largely, uh, if not entirely, a film populated by non-actors um, who, uh, you know, it, sometimes it's apparent that they're not actors. I know an interesting, uh, kind of argument I've had with people is whether you can sort of how easy or difficult it is to determine acting ability through, uh, when it's performed in a language you don't understand. I tend to actually feel that I, I can still determine it. And, you know, there's definitely, you can tell in this case that you're watching non-actors often, but it still has this, um, I don't know the authenticity of of the of the filmmaking more than makes up for it um in the sense of its you know real locations um real people and uh real attention to detail um you know I wish I could remember a little more but I I actually haven't seen it since Rotterdam I was very glad to see that the young critics recognized that you uh, I know were a mentor uh for the young critics program um, this year at Mommy, and uh, I had the chance of chatting with some of them incredibly intelligent and perceptive um, young critics. So it was great to see them recognize this film as their favorite. Absolutely. And I, I'll just add a quick note that one of the things I think is quite remarkable about the film is, you know, there's a, a genre of Hindi and Bollywood cinema that's, that has been described as the Muslim social and it's it's um, a genre of films that you know depict kind of uh, Islamic uh, sociocultural life. Um, they used to be made, you know, there used to be so many Muslim uh, socials, like from the early days of the Indian uh, of the North Indian film industry up to I would say maybe to the two thousands. And some of them would be the sort of aristocratic, you know, films about aristocratic uh, and Nawabi. Islamic, um, um, you know, families like royal uh, families and that sort of court, uh, the court culture. And then also about middle class Muslim families, you know, just uh, dealing with everyday life, dealing with either discrimination or, or the other challenges of urban living. And, you know, I don't know if um, I've really seen that many films of that genre come out in the last couple decades. You know, I don't think you... Uh, see on Indian screens that kind of, at least in the mainstream, that kind of depiction of just like everyday lives of Muslims and the everyday rituals and social practices. And I remember when you showed me the film, the thought that came to my mind was that this seems like a really interesting modern take on the Muslim social, you know, because those films usually were also like melodramas. And this one is just such a non-event kind of film, just such a even-handed, observational, uh, just uh, portrait of, of a family and a neighborhood. But it really does give you access into that kind of, again, the quotidian lives of Muslims in, in a particular part of India. So, yeah, I think it just, it, it struck me as really interesting as that kind of contemporary take on that genre. 
Um, you mentioned Srikant Srinivasan, one of the programmers of Mami, and I, I really want to give him a shout out because uh, another section of that festival that he uh, programmer, or I should say a shorts program that he put together just took my breath away. So Srikant uh, is an expert in the films of Amit Datta, the Indian experimental filmmaker. He's written a, a book about him called Modernism by Other Means. And he put together a program of Amit Datta's recent shorts called Animating the Archive. A little bit about Amit Datta, um, he's an experimental uh, kind of master, I would say, who's been making films since the early 2000s. Um, people might have heard him from Na uh, from Nansuk, which is a feature he made in 2010 about sort of an 18th century painter from, you know, North India that I, you know, premiered at Venice and, and got a lot of circulation and attention, but he's made a bunch of other films. And he has a, a completely idiosyncratic sort of uh, expressionist style. And he's often taking up uh, Indian artistic traditions, literary traditions, folk traditions, and playing with them in this extraordinary expressionist way, kind of bringing them alive uh, through the kind of sound and image capacities of cinema. And the two shorts I saw... Uh, very much kind of, I think, live up to that description. I'll say that I watch them in, so all of the Mumbai Film Festival screenings take place in these huge multiplexes, uh, you know, PVR and Inox spread all over the city. And it's really interesting to watch art house films in these very shiny, glamorous theaters that are embedded within huge malls and are often playing big Bollywood blockbusters also, you know, in, in one of the screens. And I actually took my parents to this one, to the Amit Datta programs, and they were just so lost at the beginning. They kept whispering to each other, like, do you understand anything? I don't get it at all. But then by the end, we're just so pleased and, and kind of um, entranced by, by the films, which I think uh, attests to how pleasing they are. Uh, so the two short films I want to shout out from that program are, uh, the first one is called Touch Air. And... It uh, is sort of an homage to this uh, Indian artist named Nasreen Mohammadi. Nasreen Mohammadi's work was kind of known for its play with the bare line, you know, just the, the single line and linearity. And uh, the film is just, you know, incorporates some of her uh, the artist's writings as well as um, kind of architectural work. And a lot of it takes place Within, you know, I'm I'm not sure exactly what these spaces were. It seemed like a gallery space. One seemed like some kind of artisanal production space and kind of combines images of people working with like within these real material spaces with materials. Like in one scene, you see an artist like making a frame for a canvas with abstract kind of graphic representation of lines and and sort of other flat linear shapes and it's combined with this whooshing kind of sound that really evokes or brings to mind what it's like to explore kind of um, an empty space and kind of fill it with movement and it all just comes together in in a work that to me felt really like an extraordinary evocation of space through the cinematic medium, you know, like 
I've never seen space represented in this way. Uh, so that was one film. And the other that I want to mention is um, called Mother Who Will Weave Now, which animates the Indian textile tradition and the history of uh, Indian textile artistry uh, by having, it, it takes I, I what I believe are like snippets of fabric with traditional embroidery on them, you know, depicting sort of like uh, mythological and Hindu religious scenes and then animating them, you know? So the figures, the embroidered figures on these cloths become animated and sort of like travel across the uh, screen and across the piece of, of fabric and sort of interact with one another. Very place, playful, you know, almost like a childlike, a sense of play emanating from these uh, from these animated sections, but it's also sort of cut and scored to a very poetic meter, and interwoven with these lines from a poem uh, by the weaver saint poet Kabir, and so again, it's this incredible melding of poetry and the the capacities of cinema that again felt like an artistic object all of its own. Yeah, I was very sorry to miss those films. Another film that I wanted to shout out uh, is a documentary that actually world premiered uh, at Mami um, called uh, Trolley Times uh, by the director Gurvinder uh, Singh, who I believe has prior to this made only fiction films, um, which I haven't seen, but seem pretty well regarded. Um, this is a long uh, documentary I mentioned, uh, you know, on four-hour documentaries before, and there was uh, certainly no shade in that, um, as I love a long movie. Um, and uh, I think this one is also uh, over the three-hour mark. Um, it's about the farmer protests um, that took place in India from November 2020 to December 2021. Um in response to three acts passed by the Indian parliament in September, 2020. Uh, I don't, uh, you know, fully understand the particulars uh, of each law, but they were characterized as quote unquote anti-farmer laws. And it seems that um, the overall effect was they gave uh, more power uh, to corporations and to big agribusiness. Um, uh, kind of taking away uh, leverage and agency from small farmers. Um, the title of the film comes from a sort of uh, people's press paper that's printed during uh, the protests uh, called Trolley Times. Um, and the film is split into four sections that chart the progress of the protests um, from uh, various states um, to the capital uh, of Delhi. Um, once the farmers actually uh, made it to uh, Delhi, they were prevented uh, from entering uh, by police forces um, and were met with police brutality. But the film is incredibly powerful. It's made up um, of a lot of direct address of protest to the camera. So it's a series of these quite long takes, long static takes, as in the camera is static. Um, but there's a lot of movement and a lot of people within the frame. Um, and they're often looking directly at the camera and chanting. And I think, uh, you know, like protest chants. And I think for um, people who are interested in um, that kind of action, 
um, it's it's kind of uh, you know like catnip. It's incredibly compelling um, and extremely political. I mentioned earlier I was curious about where things stand with with free speech in India right now, and um, you know it says something um, that this film was able to play at the festival. Um, it's a pretty uh, the farmers uh, who organized and led these protests. Um, had pretty acute and far-ranging political um, convictions. You know, they criticized both the government. Uh, these, you know, chants are not subtle. I, you know, I recall down with the Modi government and um, and then also the corporate powers of India. It was surreal. As you as you alluded to, mall culture is very much still alive in, in India. All of these, uh, you know, uh, multiplexes were within these... Um, very fancy malls. And um, the screening that I saw this particular film at was at a PVR uh, multiplex in the Geo World Center Mall. Um, Geo, again, being the company owned by the Ambani's. And so it was a little uh, surreal watching this film um, to hear a chant or a comment along the lines of, uh, you know, we have to prevent India from becoming Ambanistan. Um, as they call it. Um, but again, I think this is a great um, protest film. It really captures the energy um, of the movement and its sheer size. Um, I think uh, I think and I hope that uh, it should be seen more widely. Lovely. Uh, speaking of protest films, I'll maybe close us out with... Um a really special film that I was able to catch at the festival in its uh, restorations and sort of retrospective section. Um, it's a film called, in in uh, its original title is Han Hanshi Hanshilal, and the English title is Love in the Time of Malaria. Uh, it's screened as part of a, a tribute to Navro's contractor, who uh, was this incredible uh, cinematographer uh, who passed away Earlier this year, in a in a really tragic accident, uh, he shot Money Calls film Duvidha, which I think we can, you know, I, I would argue that it is maybe one of the most beautifully shot films of all time. Uh, Navroz was also just very important in the radical documentary uh, movement in India, actually. He uh, was part of the Uganthar Film Collective, um, uh, which was this feminist film collective in the 1980s that made a series of films about labor, uh, feminist labor movements. Uh, and he shot all of the films by the Indian documentarian Deepa Dhanraj. And a lot of Deepa's and Uganthar's films, um, you know, have a beautiful footage of protests, strikes, uh, of collective action. And Han 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 Shilal, Love in the Time of Malaria, is a, a fiction film. It's like this very absurdist satire, but it incorporates documentary scenes of protests um, from the 1990s, which just end live in the film with this just energy, this kind of crowd energy that uh, Navroz was so wonderful at capturing. So Love in the Time of Malaria came out in 1992, directed by uh, this independent filmmaker Sanjeev Shah. It's a Gujarati language film, and it has this truly ridiculous and uh, utterly entertaining setup. It is set in this sort of fictional kingdom 
ruled by uh, this kind of larger than life and strange king figure. And the kingdom is besieged by mosquitoes and all the problems caused by mosquitoes. So Hanshilal, this young scientist, is recruited as part of a lab charged with finding a cure for the mosquito problems and coming up with some sort of repellent made from this kingdom's main crop, which is raw onion. And what unfolds is this um, musical satire. The entire film unfolds as a series of short songs with... um, with drawing from Gujarati folk song, folk poetry traditions. Um, And they're all just very strongly allegorical, metaphorical, with, you know, really strong political undertones. Um, And it kind of traces this plot where Hanshilal becomes embroiled through a woman, a, a fellow scientist at the lab that he falls in love with, in a plot to overthrow the government. And it quickly becomes clear that these mosquitoes are just a very thinly veiled metaphor for the poor and the working class who are rising up in protest against a government who is neglecting them, uh, you know, in favor of uh, big corporations, which was something that was happening in India in the 90s, you know, in the 90s, around when this film came about, was when uh, the IMF and the World Bank basically uh, forced India to undergo structural adjustments and open up its economy and kind of ushered in foreign capital. So it's really at that cusp. And there were a lot of other movements uh, going on in India at the time, including around uh, religious uh, differences, uh, you know, a lot of labor movements. And so the film really kind of captures that time in Indian politics and culture, but through this totally skewed and, uh, you know, larger than life lens that says so much also about the current moment that, you know, you alluded to when you were talking about trolley times. I think that ties together some threads we've been talking about quite nicely. Um, The final thing I'd say is just that I I encourage people to, uh, or, you know, critics, programmers who've traditionally attended mostly just these kind of bigger Western festivals to branch out because, um, I found it to be a, a really enriching um, experience. And again, the fest was really well programmed. Um, and there are a lot of uh, connections and conversations that happen that, you know, we're not talking about here, but um, which I think really underline the value of um, stepping into other contexts. Well, now, I think that's a beautiful note to wrap up on. Thank you so much, Ine. It was a pleasure to experience the festival with you and and kind of uh, share our thoughts and recommendations here. And I hope that listeners get to seek out all these films. Um, I'll once again say that Against the Tide is coming to theaters this Friday. So do check it out. And I'm really hoping that we'll have a chance to see all the other films in New York as well. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.